So if I haven't told you lately, man, I love looking out here and seeing your smiling faces each time I'm up here. I feel like you all are my team. I love being one of your pastors. It's just awesome. Years ago, you know, um, when my kids were little, my husband Tim actually started using this concept of a team with our kids. And um, it was just a great way to sort of impart values to them and teach them the importance of encouraging each other and supporting each other as a, as a team. And at first it was just little things like, well, how come we go to church and so-and-so doesn't? And Tim would say, well, we're the Belinskys. That's just what we do. And then it would, it, I can think of a million little examples of things that he would say to them, whether it was sharing a toy or it was maybe taking piano lessons or music lessons or even shoveling our own driveway instead of hiring it out. Tim would say, we're the Belinskys. That's just what we do. And Tim loves to tinker in the garage and build things, and occasionally, often, he would enlist the help of some of the kids to, to join in. And most of the time, they did it with, you know, great adaptability and enthusiasm. But once in a while, they'd be like, Dad, why don't we just pay somebody to build this? And Tim would say, we're the Belinskys. It's just what we do. But there was a clear message to our kids that we are in this together. There's pride in that. There's a, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of place. That's what it feels like here for me at Snowmass Chapel. And it's felt that way since the very beginning. I'll never forget, I wish she was here this morning, I don't see her, but Lisa Demento um, had been my daughter's kindergarten teacher. And so years later then, when I uh, was called here to Snowmass Chapel, I'll never forget Lisa's reaction. She said to me, oh, that's my church. <laughs> Just like that. I remember her like beating her chest even. That's my church. She was so excited. She said, you're going to love it there. There was such a sense of pride and identity. And she was so excited to share her church with me. And that excitement is contagious. The chapel staff and I, along with a few congregate members and community members, have been engaged in some strategic planning this past year. And one of the things that, uh, that we are focused on is really trying to help people connect to each other and deepen their faith once they're here. And so things like you know, helping you connect via small groups or helping you connect in Bible studies or volunteering, service projects, all sorts of things. We're brainstorming ideas. And, and so one of the things that we did was we invited members of the community to come here and tell us their impressions of Snowmass Chapel. We know we have something special to offer, but we wanted to see what do other people think? What are their impressions? And how can we use that to go out into the community and really help people know what we're all about? and how they can get more engaged. And so we invited some folks here to come and have lunch with us last fall, and we asked them, what are some of the words that people use to describe? Or what are some of the impressions that you have? Now, some of these people attend church regularly, a few of them. A few of them maybe come once or twice a year, and a few of them never attend church services, but have been to some workshops or other things that we've offered. And so here are some of the things that those people said to us that day. Here are their impressions. One said, the strength of your programs that you offer to the community gives people a non-threatening way to experience church and its people. 
Another said, sometimes people have a perception about churches that is non-welcoming to certain groups, but here it always feels inclusive and socially aware. Another one said, everyone is welcome and accepted. Somebody else said, it's relaxed, you can breathe here. The same person said, you can be authentic here. And then somebody else said, there's a very positive perception in the community that the chapel is all about love. Man, that's a team I want to be a part of, don't you? That is awesome. Now, one person in the group actually said something pretty funny. He said, you know, the chapel is welcoming and it's inclusive and it's a guilt-free zone. He said, sometimes I want to say to my friends, you know, you ought to give it a try. You, you might not mind it. And we all laughed, and I said, you know, you're, you're uh, I'm not going to name names, but I said, you're, you're pretty high up in the marketing world, so I think maybe we're on to a new tagline, Snowmass Chapel. You might not mind it. <laughs> but honestly, I was thinking, if that's what it takes to get somebody in the door, then more power to them. Bring it on, because once they get there, what they're going to see is a team of people who are committed to hospitality and welcome and love and inclusion. They're gonna find a team of people who are rooted in the Bible and working hard to live lives that show others they follow Jesus. Many of you, so many of you are involved in different aspects of serving the church here, volunteering, leading Bible studies, or attending them in all sorts of different ways. You're lifting up the people who are around you. We're working together as a team. Paul refers to this over and over again as working together as the body of Christ. Now, I'm not naive. I know you're not either. We've all been around churches and schools and communities long enough to know that people don't always get along. Am I right? And I think Jesus knew that this would happen. In the Gospel of John, Jesus prays for his disciples and for the coming church. It's the longest prayer by Jesus anywhere in the Gospels. And he spends a portion of it praying for all of us. It's a beautiful depiction of Jesus' heart. It's a beautiful depiction of Jesus' love for his disciples, but also for the love of those who will follow you and I. Three times there in the chapter, chapter 17 in John, Jesus prays that the disciples will be united. He says to God, keep them united as one, just as you and I are one. And then Jesus says, and I'm praying not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. In the final days of his life, Jesus' prayer was for his followers to be united. Now, as you look around here today, it might be relatively easy for you to nod your heads and say, yeah, we are united, we're a team. It's easy to love and behave in loving ways when you know you're gonna see each other every Sunday, or at least bump into each other up at the post office once in a while. It's a little more difficult to say we're united with people we've never met, especially if they happen to belong to that other church. But we have thousands of Christian denominations in the world today. Even when there was just one, 
the Catholic Church for a thousand years before it split into the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Even then, though, before that, when we were quote-unquote united, there were undoubtedly divisions, different schools of thought, varying practices among Christians of different cultures, and there were most certainly bias and prejudice and narrow-mindedness and discrimination of all kinds based on the way that people worship or acted out their faith, just as we know it happens today. And so what is required of us is a little bit of humility and grace. And I need you to remind me of that too, because there are things that just get to me sometimes. There are a lot of Christians who are focused on a single issue today, abortion, homosexuality, whether or not to ordain women, whether or not to ordain gay and lesbian clergy. I struggle with the hyper-focus that some people have on single issues. It drives me crazy because it drives a wedge between us. The great preacher and theologian Walter Brueggemann, who's an expert on the Old Testament, said that the Bible never focused solely on single issues. Instead, he says, the writers talked about broad-based spiritual concerns and about people's relationship with God and the transformative nature of that relationship. The writers talked about behaviors and about supporting the weakest and the most vulnerable among us, about turning our lives back to God. But the modern church, Brueggemann pointed out, has built itself around these single issues. So I, I need reminders too, humility and grace. We heard in scripture today that every believer makes up the body of Christ and that God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as God chose. You are chosen and so are they. God's people don't always dress and act and, and, and behave like I do. Sometimes, not often, but sometimes, I'll hear someone's theology or biblical interpretation, and it's kind of like nails on the chalkboard. And most of the time, I just don't engage. I don't see the point of that. But I also know that we are called to be in relationship with people, not to isolate ourselves into tidy, little, agreeable groups. So I continually have to remind myself to ask, what would God have me hear in this message, in this point of view? What is it about this perspective that I'm hearing that I need to hear today? What is it? What truth might there be? What truth might there be in this message so that I don't just dismiss it? I try to remember that people are always doing the best they can with the tools they have in the circumstances of their life, including me. So understanding that we are naturally going to be different from one another and knowing that God planned for each of those differences within the one body of Christ, then all of Paul's exhortations to kindness and forgiveness and unity and self-sacrifice are really an invitation to our personal radical transformation. Let me give you an example of what I believe God wants from us 
when we encounter difference in each other and difference within our church communities. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 4, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's a transformative way to live. Paul goes on to say that when we strive to be one with Jesus, everything else takes care of itself. He says that Christ took the arms and the legs of the body and he knit them together to every ligament with which the body is equipped and that when each part is working properly, it promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. So how are we doing building the body up in love? Are we working properly or are we building barriers by not honoring the different parts of our body? It's very easy for us to forget the fundamental equality that exists between all Christians because of our baptism. When we recognize that across all cultures, all creeds, all denominations or lack thereof, when we recognize that equality because of our baptism, we are transformed by the grace of God. And not only that, but life is just a whole lot nicer when we're not divisive and bickering and arguing, isn't it? The good news is there are some things, some fundamental things that we can do to increase our awareness of the gifts of the body of Christ. We can start by doing a lot of listening, more listening than talking. We can stop making blanket statements about entire denominations and churches. We can say, tell me more about that, instead of just jumping to conclusions. Real conversation, you know this, does not happen on social media. When we play it out there, things get very askew. So don't, don't play it out in social media. Instead, connect with people in real time, people who are different. Read blogs, talk to people who have different perspectives and opinions, and you know it. Seek them out. Seek first to understand. Look for something you can agree on. Find something worth noting. One of my favorite stories that I've shared for years in parenting classes is that Rudolf Dreikers, who was a famed child psychologist in the 1950s and 60s, was visiting a classroom of first and second graders. And the teacher asked him to help look at some of the homework the kids had. And so he was looking over their penmanship exercises. And this one little boy brought up his penmanship exercise and apparently it was just a disaster. I mean, he couldn't tell what any of the letters were. And so Rudolf Dreikers took one look at the paper and he said, you know, that is a very fine O right there. I think that's what we need to do. We need to find something, something that we can connect on. And finally, it might do a little good for us to consider the light in which we are often viewed and ask what role Am I playing in this divisiveness? Humility and grace. 
In the 1970s, the Church of England and others gathered together to study some of the pressing concerns of the church at the time. And among the concerns was this issue of divisiveness between three factions of the church that had kind of uh, begun to be very, uh, very prominent. We see the same kind of thing, by the way, today in many of our denominations throughout the United States. So these people came together and they authored a document that was called the Nottingham Statement. And this is just part of what it said regarding this issue of divisiveness. It said, while we value the historic responsibility of the Church of England, we renounce any superiority, any superiority complex of which we are guilty. It went on to say, we repent of the carelessness and insensitivity on our part, which has caused and contributed to the growing apart of our denomination. Note that it doesn't say which might have contributed to the growing apart. They aren't like, you know, we're really sorry if it caused some divisiveness. No, they just straight up said, we repent of the carelessness and insensitivity on our part, which might have contributed to it. And then it goes on to say, we wish to reassert our commitment to share in interdenominational work. And then finally, I love this. It says, seeing ourselves all as fellow Christians, we repent of attitudes that have seemed to deny it. It's powerful. God's grace must never become a source of pride or division. Ultimately, the only team that matters is God's team. Now, I'm not here to minimize difference. There may well be places of worship that in good conscience, you don't ever want to step into. Sometimes the difference is negligible and sometimes it is worth challenging. One writer that I love said, we're a family. We're going to fight like one. But the human body has 206 bones, 639 muscles, and about six pounds of skin along with ligaments, cartilage, blood, fat. Every time we hear a sound, every time we take a step, every time we take a breath, hundreds of parts work together so that we experience that in one single movement. We have a long way to go before all of humanity can work together as one unit, the way that the miraculous human body does, thanks to our creator. But make no mistake, each one of us plays a critical role in bringing that about. So in the days and the weeks ahead, I invite you to think about what it means to be the body, to be truly in this work together. I invite us to reflect on what each of us can do as members of the body of Christ, arranged and chosen by God to strengthen and build up and unify and increase the body of Christ, both here at Snowmass Chapel and in the world. So I invite you to reflect on that now as together we pray.